Good morning. I'm Pastor Aaron. I'm an associate pastor here at EMC. I'm filling in for Pastor Sean, who's uh, with his family in Ohio, and we are uh, praying that he's going to be able to return back to us safely this week. Um, But with that, let's pray as we enter into the Word of God. Kind Father. Yeah, the children can go. Uh, kind Father, we, uh, we thank you for your, your grace to us here this morning. And uh, as we open your scriptures and we, we hear from them, uh, we take hold of this uh, amazing declaration in the scriptures that, that as your word is preached, it's Christ himself preaching to us. That you have come to, to proclaim your word to your people by your spirit. And Father, we ask that you would open our hearts, that you would give us uh, hearts that are, that are eager and willing and able to receive your word proclaimed to us this morning. That we would leave here transformed as your people, we pray, in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. Um, now, quick show of hands, who here has made a New Year's resolution? Okay, not many. Okay, just, just a few of you. I, I assumed if you were like me and you, you consume too many, you know, holiday goodies that you might have a few pounds to lose or an exercise routine to, to pick up or, you know, decided I'm just going to read more this year. But apparently, no, you guys are all set, minus a couple of you. You're, you're good to go. What's that? You outgrew them. Okay, all right. Well, fair enough. Well, um, yeah, they don't, they don't do good. And I, I understand that. But, you know, you just completely ruined my introduction. So, <laughs> but, well, many of us, not you, but many of us at times need a fresh start, don't we? Right? We need, I mean, we sometimes read of stories of students who get so humiliated at school that they have to change schools or people whose lives fall apart and they need just to, to move out of state that many of us you know we've we've messed up sometimes our own fault sometimes not but we need a fresh start and others of us we feel like you know we are we're good to go and this may be this may be you I like my life. I've done a pretty good job. I've made good decisions. I've, I've done what I've needed to do. And I'm good. And both groups should be wondering, maybe we're not, but am I good with God? And it's so easy for us to look at our lives in the way that they are, whether they are a mess or they're pretty well done, and make our determination about where I am with God based upon where our circumstances are. Have I made good decisions? Have I led a moral life? Have I done the right things? And oftentimes, when we answer these questions, we can get a very misleading answer to us. And today, as we enter, uh, open our, our Bibles to Luke chapter 18, if you have one of the guest Bibles, it's on page 842, and we're going to learn this very Important truth, I'm, you know, normally I don't like to give, like, the thesis at the beginning, but today I'm going to give the thesis at the beginning. That justification, and by that I mean our, us being in right relationship with God, 
is both farther than we could ever fear, but nearer than we could ever hope. That forgiveness, that the divine forgiveness for our sins and where we are, it's farther than we could ever fear, but nearer than we could ever hope. We are going to be talking about the troublesome mercy of God here this morning. And so if you would, we're in Luke chapter 18, and we're going to begin at verse 9. And we're going to open up into one of Jesus' parables. Now, I'm preparing to, to teach a class on the parables, um, you know, an adult Sunday school class, in, starting within a couple weeks in, in the infused room. Um, and so the parables have been on my mind. Um, and, you know, this one stuck out to me here. And, and so parables, if you don't know, these are short stories given by Jesus that illustrate you know, a, a, a point, that get at something. And one of the characteristics about a parable is that it is subversive to our expectations. And oftentimes, either because we've read it so often or we read, we read into it what we want, we fail to see how subversive the parables are. How they turn out our ideas on their head, how they transform our, our way of thinking in, in ways that we were not expecting, and oftentimes in ways that we don't like. And this is one of those parables. So we are in Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. And so Jesus, he told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. He says, Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this prayer. I thank you, God. I'm not like a, a sinner like everyone else. I don't cheat. I don't sin. I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and said, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner and not the Pharisee returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, one of the main problems that we have and we come to this passage is that when we read Pharisee, if you've been around churches for a while, if you've read through the gospel, you have a particular view of Pharisee, which is completely different to the people who, to whom Jesus was speaking. When we hear Pharisee, what do we hear? Self-righteous, holier-endowed, judgmental, evil people. We import Jesus' warnings to them, like something like in Matthew 23, when he goes on this uh, list of things that the, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, what they're like, or at least a portion of them. And, you know, he calls them um, whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They look pretty on the outside, but inside they're full of decay and uncleanness. He calls them, you know, a, a cup which has been washed on the outside, but Inside, it's full of greed and self-indulgence. And we take Jesus' warnings and, we, and, you know, and his conflict with these, with these Pharisees, these religious leaders, and then we import it into whatever passage that we're reading. And when we do that, 
we miss at the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Now, when we talk about modern-day Pharisees, we, we often talk about those who are, you know, just kind of nasty, judgmental people. But let's think about Pharisees as, well, the people whom Jesus was talking to might think about them. They would be the people that you'd want to be your kid's soccer coach. They would be the ones who are chosen to be on the elder board of the church, if not the pastor. They would be the ones who showed up to every work day at, you know, at the church and worked their heart out with a smile. They'd be the ones whose tithes and donations help carry the church through difficult times. They perhaps might even have a plaque on a pew or you know, a, a sanctuary wall thanking them be, for their great and generous donations. They'd be teaching the Sunday school, or at least the star pupil, the ones who took seriously the word of God, who dove into it, who knew it backwards and forwards. They would be the ones who stand up for true doctrine. They go far and beyond what the law demanded. And we can see that even in this, par- in this, in this parable. Right? In the Mosaic law, you know, ask people to fast one day a year on Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. What does he do? Well, he fasts twice a week. That's the last time we fasted. He does it twice a week. Not only that, when, you know, he, he ties, when it says, everything that he gets. Now, the NLT says he ties his, all his income, but, you know, what the, what the Greek is saying is he ties everything that he gets. He, he goes above and beyond what the law commanded. Right? The law said, you know, you are to give, you know, a tenth of your your produce and your crops. But there was a problem that some of the, the people were dealing with. You see, when God uh, judged Israel in the Old Testament, one of the things he judged them for was they did not give their tithes. They were, not, they were withholding from him what they owed him. And so, you know, these Pharisees zealous for the law, trying to do what was, what was right. And they realized, well, you know, I have a responsibility not only to tithe my own stuff, but to make sure that everything I have in possession gets tithed. And so, you know, those who, you know, are practicing tithing, you, you know, oftentimes we get, you know, a paycheck and we take it off a tenth of that and we give it to the church or, you know, towards God. And, you know, that is our, our tithe. You know, it's the tenth of what we have. Um, but... When we buy stuff with that, we don't tithe what we buy. But the Pharisees would. Because they, they didn't know if the person that they bought it from tithed their stuff. And so he says, I'm going to go above you. I want to make sure everything that I have gets tithed. And so what, even, even if I, you know, I buy some, some wheat at the market, well, I'm going to tithe what I buy. They want to make sure that if God is going to judge his people for not tithing again, it's not going to be on my account. I'm going to do my part. And even try to help with other people's parts. The Pharisees, for most of Jesus' hearers, were going to be the most righteous people that they knew. And Jesus, you know, he brings, he brings up this Pharisee 
and, and it, his closing remark that he does not go home righteous. He does not go home justified before God. And if it doesn't confront our notions of justice and righteousness, well, then we're not hearing Jesus. Not the way he intended us to hear him. Now, when I was younger, um, one of the things that I did in my youth group, we would occasionally go out and do what's called evangelism explosion. Um, And, you know, I have some hesitations about doing that nowadays, but um, evangelism explosion was offered some practical ways of being able to get into spiritual conversations with people. And we go out to, uh, you know, into like a city or a town and just begin to ask people this question. We'd say, you know, if you were to die tonight and you were standing before God and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And most people would respond, well, I'm a good person. And then you'd ask some follow-up questions like, Have you ever lied? Yes. Have you ever stolen? Yes. You know, Jesus says if you've lusted at somebody, you've committed adultery. Have you ever lusted? Yes. Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Yeah, well, that's that's called blasphemy. So by your own admission, you're a living, thieving, adulterous blasphemer. Is heaven supposed to be full of lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemers? No. So why should you go into heaven? Why should God let you in? And sometimes it would produce fruitful uh, conversations, and sometimes not. And while I do have, you know, some reservations about using the material, it does make this good point, right? It's just like it, it confronts us with, you know, perhaps we're not as good as we think we are. And while we think that we're good people, you know, when, when pressed, you know, when we put ourselves under the scrutiny of the scriptures, we realize, well, you know, we fall short. We're lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemers. And God is a holy God. That our righteousness is not able to make us right before God. And we see this Pharisee whose righteousness is beyond our own. And when we say, I'm a, you know, I'm a lying, thieving, adulterous blasphemer, and we hear his prayer about, you know, how, and there's no reason to think that he's lying. That he is just. That he is not an adulterer. That he doesn't do these bad things. He doesn't steal. He doesn't lie. He doesn't do, he doesn't break the law of God. He, he seems to, as far as we can tell, to keep a majority of the law of God. We're not given any privy access to some hidden sin that is obscure from his sight. What we have, the condemnation of Jesus on this Pharisee is just what we have here in this text. And we shouldn't read in his other condemnations or, uh, you know, his conflicts with Pharisees onto this particular Pharisee. He is not a cheater. He's not a sinner or an unjust one. As the Greek says, he's not an adulterer. And not only that, is he goes beyond, above and beyond what's required of him in his personal piety in quiet times. And yet Jesus says he doesn't go home justified. He doesn't go home forgiven. That justification is farther than we think. 
And for many of us, we view our justification, our right standing with God based upon our sanctification of how holy that we have been this past week, this past year, this past life. And it's a dangerous place to be because guess what? The Pharisee didn't make it. He fell short. Despite all his good works and lack of bad works, at the end of the day, God's verdict on him is he did not measure up. He doesn't go home justified. And what was, his, what was the big problem? It's not immediately obvious to, to see. He thanks God that he's not like other people, which he could have been. He gives God credit. Shouldn't we give God credit for what we could have been and aren't? Shouldn't we thank him that I have not given myself to drugs or alcohol or I have not, you know, done wicked evil. I have not become the, the drug dealer or any of Can we thank God for the blessings of having been preserved and saved from evil? Yeah, we should. We should give God thanks for that. And he does. But there's something else that's going on that within the subtext of his, his thanking God is this self-righteousness that comes out that I'm not like this tax collector. That in our pursuit of justification and of righteousness and of right living before God, I'm going to mention two traps that we may fall into. The first trap is this. It's important to note that in the fruit of our salvation lies a seed of apostasy. It's a warning, right? In the fruit of our salvation lies a seed of our apostasy. That those who have given their life to Jesus and have walked with him and are receiving the benefit of, of a life being made right with God, in there lies the seed that can turn us away from God. That in our righteousness, we can become self-righteous. John Wesley, you know, we're fairly familiar with, with Wesley, um, the old Methodist preacher you know, who began the Methodist movement. And he remarked about some, what was happening in his own day, right? He was, a, he, he was kind of kicked out of the churches because of the gospel, you know, preaching the gospel. And he was doing open air, you know, field preaching. And the people that were coming and hearing him weren't the people who adorned the, the churches. They were the ruffians, the, the nobodies, the no goods that would come and hear him preach. And they would hear the gospel. They would respond to the gospel. They would turn and repent. They would gr- and they'd start growing in the graces of God. And in there, John Wesley noted, remarked about that within their salvation, there was a, a new temptation. See, a lot of these ruffians, they would give themselves to, you know, booze and, you know, uh, smoking and, and other habits that would, well, uh, take away, you know, their finances. They're oftentimes, you know, not diligent and lazy. And, and then, well, God started to transform them. 
and they would give up bad habits, and they become diligent at work. And suddenly, this people who were, you know, these no, no goods be, started becoming wealthy. And Wesley's fear for them that, like, yeah, they, in the fruit of what God's produced, they've also, they become naturally wealthy. You know, they're, they're diligent, they're frugal, they're not giving them, you know, squandering their money on, on foolish things. And now they're starting to have money. And that in itself became a snare for many of their souls. The allure of wealth. So often in, within the fruit of the salvation, there's this seed of apostasy that must be rooted out and killed. And here, as we, we read about the, the Pharisee, what we see is in the fruit of the goodness of what God has given him, there's a seed of self-righteousness. And how do we see it? How do we see when, when you move from, oh, God, thank you for the, the gifts of graces that you've given me to a self-righteousness? Well, it comes with this. He despises other people. He hates them. Or he looks down on them with contempt. It's pretty easy to do. Now, we don't necessarily look down with, with such scorn on tax collectors. But imagine an updated version of the Pharisee's prayer. God, thank you that I'm not like that drug dealer. Thank you that I'm not one of those anti-vaxxers who are ruining America. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the, the abortionist who's sl- murdering little babies. Thank you, God, that I'm not this racist, sexist, homophobe that, you know, is, is a blight on our, on our past. We update the language and we see all too clearly how, how we too can fit into the mold of the Pharisee, can't we? How we too, in, in our righteousness, can look down upon others with scorn and contempt. To view them as the problem in the world rather than ourselves. That within, you know, this is the, the trap, this is one of the traps to beware of. That within our salvation is this the fruit of apostasy. And the second trap is this. The reverse self-righteousness. Now, when Jesus spoke this parable, most of his people would, would be like, well, I want to identify with the Pharisee, Right? We talked about, you know, while we have this really negative view of the Pharisees, you know, the holier and now judgmental people, you know, most of his hearers would say, well, I, that's the person I want to be. That's the person I want my children to be. And we wouldn't want to identify with the tax collector at all. But in our day and age, because we so love, I guess, niceness, we'd be more likely to, to be the tax collector. To have a, what we call a reverse self-righteousness. And say something like, God, thank you. I'm not like that braggadocious, obnoxious, holier-than-thou Pharisee. Thank you. I'm not going to prayer, listing my accomplishments and, you know, bragging before you. Thank, thank you. I'm not having scorn on the, you know, on the, the no-goods of society like he is. We fall 
You know, we say this unironically as, as if we're not doing the, the exact same thing. That somehow we, we find that it's, it's more meritorious to judge the Pharisee for his self-righteousness than for him to judge us for our unrighteousness. There's a certain contingent of people who, who view, you know, whose only memorized scripture is Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest you be judged, which is used as a weapon. So don't tell me I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What Jesus is not saying here in this parable is that the only unforgivable sin is judging others. We hear the words of Paul who, who talks about those who following sinful, the sinful nature. And the results of that in Galatians 5 is sexual immorality and impurity and lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like this. And what he says about this is, let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. That Jesus isn't downplaying holiness or saying that it's not, it's not doesn't matter. He's not saying that it's a foolish uh, pursuit when he condemns the Pharisee. He's not condemning the, the pursuit of holiness at all. The point of the story is not that rebels need not repent. The point of the story is that the seemingly righteous must as well. Those who have their act together, those who don't need to make a New Year's resolution. That within our, within our lives, that there is this, this call to, to repent and come broken before the Holy One of Israel. And we miss that so often. And then we get to the, what we're going to call the troublesome mercy of God as he deals with this tax collector. Now again, we're, we're at a deficit here of being able to hear Jesus' words as, as his original hearers would. And very often I've noticed that when we think about the squabble, you know, interpersonal squabbles of other cultures and other times, they always seem so petty to us, don't they? Like, just get over it and get along. Seldom do we view their contempt for a people with the righteous indignation that they deserve. You know, one of the things that has been talked about quite often in our society is this idea of cancel culture. And what, if you're not familiar with the phrase, it's basically that when the sins of somebody, they, they come to light and are broadcasted and, well, almost a mob forms in order to say, we don't want to put up with this kind of behavior or thought or words in society and we want their lives destroyed more more or less so somebody says you know something that's unsuitable and a mob forms and goes after their employers and says you need to fire this person and then you know the person gets fired and then they you know when they try to apply for a new job and somebody googles their name and then it comes up with oh this person said this horrible thing and, and even if they were clear with it at some level, then they're like, well, if you hire this person, then this mob is going to come after you. Right? We live in this uh, a cancel culture society, and sometimes we talk about its excess, right? The censorious nature of canceling, you know, a cancel culture. Like the, um, the professional soccer player who was fired from his job because 
his wife said something offensive. Or the pastor whose you know, large church lost its lease with a school. They're leasing out a school on the weekends in order to help invest in their community, using all their resources to provide you know, free COVID testing at a time where it wasn't readily available. Who, whose ministry among the community of you know, giving to the, the poor and the needy and helping the addicts was, was renowned, but the pastor had the misfortune of liking a post of an organization whose other posts, well, some of the people on the school board found politically offensive, and so they revoked their lease. And we view those things as you know, the excess of cancel culture. But at the same time, many of us, you know, if, if we're honest, that there's a time and a place for such action. Right now, we're, you know, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial is going on. If you don't know who that is, she was the, the cohort of Jeffrey Epstein. She helped him groom young children to be preyed upon by the wealthy and the rich and the powerful. That the who's who of society would go through him to, to get their fix, fixes in, in terrible and evil ways. And a good culture has a righteous indignation about such evil. And we want to know those who indulge in such activity. And we want them brought to justice. And we want them to, to be brought down from their, their high places and brought low before us that we can castigate them for their evil. Yeah. And the tax collector is a lot more like that than just an over-censurious society. They were the ones who forsook and broke the bonds they had with their people in order to pursue wealth at all costs. Who made an alliance with the enemy who was oppressing the, very, the people of God and using the sword of the state in order to, to rip from their own people, wealth, so that they could be wealthy as their, their people lay impoverished. They were the sheriff of Nottingham mixed with the betrayal of an adulteress. And there was a righteous indignation against them. They were, as a class of people, completely dishonest, would lie about what the state was requiring, and use the sword of the state to enforce their lies. The later rabbi tradition would ban them from being witnesses in courts because they're just so completely unreliable. And there's this righteous indignation about them. They are the villains of society. And perhaps we would better hear the words of Jesus if we updated the language of of who's involved in this parable. Imagine a, a philanthropist who's, who does, you know, who's very involved at, at her church and has, has opened up for the people in the community you know, a, a reading program or we're taking them out of the, the danger of, the, of the, the slums and giving them a, a chance to, to excel academically and sending them off to college to get them out of this horrible pl- condition. And she... And a drug dealer come into church. A drug dealer who's, who's left a wake of broken families as he's ensnared them. 
with drugs. And they both come before God. And the, and the philanthropist lady, she says, oh, God, thank you for all the work that you're doing through me. Thank you for, for you know, saving these, these kids through me. And thank you that I'm not, I didn't give myself like this drug dealer to destroying the community for my own benefit. And the drug dealer comes in and he says, God, have mercy on me. And Jesus has the audacity to say that the drug dealer goes home justified before God and the philanthropist does not. Do you see the troublesomeness of God's mercy? Do you see how it would affect the people who would be the the, the hearers of his word? Do you find yourself almost a little bit outraged that God would, would push away the one and accept the other? And yet this is exactly what Jesus is saying, that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted and those trusting in their own righteousness with the scorn of others will ultimately find themselves outside of the kingdom of God. How wide and how vast and how deep is the mercy of God. How unlike him we are when we view others with contempt and scorn. How troubling it is to our own souls. As we look at those who seem so worthy of our scorn, and yet, and yet God extends to them mercy. That those who come and confess and repent find mercy at the feet of God. And I wonder here this morning if, if there aren't some who've had a pretty bad week or bad month or bad year. And we're wondering if there's mercy available to us as well. And when we see the, the depths of God's mercy for people like the tax collector... We find great hope, don't we? That all those who come before God, all those who cry out for mercy, all those who say, have mercy on me, they can find mercy at the foot of the cross. What I find interesting about this parable as well is that, that both people go home, don't they? Neither one of them aware of what was actually happening in the heavenlies. The Pharisee goes home just as confident as he came in that my righteousness has been enough, that my acts of piety have prevailed, that God has, well, that I'm one of God's good guys and favorites. And the tax collector probably goes home wondering if his prayer was even heard, wondering if the God of heaven didn't shut the door to his prayers because of the the lengths and the depths of his sin. Neither one knowing what is happening. But how good it is, is it, that we as the people of God have the very words of Jesus to both uh, comfort us and challenge us. That the mercy of God is available. As troublesome as it may be, as hard as it is to hear, that the mercy of God is so much greater than we can imagine. So isn't it a good thing that God's not like us? 
invite up the worship team. Let's pray. Kind Father, help us to hear the words of Jesus here this morning. In all of its troublesomeness, in all of its frustration, in all the ways that we don't want to listen to it and don't want to hear it, Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would help open up our ears to hear your word once again. Lord, we may have come in here self-righteous, condemning other people, scorning them for things that, well, it seems like they deserve to be scorned for. Allowing our righteous indignation to to run amok. And so, Lord, we, we ask for forgiveness for that as well. That come by your Spirit, purge from us all sorts of self-righteousness that we may hold and carry. And Lord, those of us who are who have come broken and humbled, help them to hear the, the, the word of this gospel that they too can find salvation, that they can find mercy here. Lord, we give you thanks that your grace and your mercy is not like our own. And Lord, as your people, uh, help us to walk as you've called us to, to live in the light of your mercy and your grace as we go into the world, we pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.